This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Again, good morning. I'm Ted Sin, pastor at New City. Our our third and final week of studying the judgment uh, side of the plague narrative in Exodus, as I've said, three weeks uh, in a row now. These famous and well-known plagues are at the same time God delivering his people and uh, bringing his great acts of judgment. He says specifically this in chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. And as we've said now over three weeks, um, these great acts of judgment uh, are against uh, three different groups, three groups that are interrelated and connected and yet distinct uh, from one another. So two weeks ago, uh, we looked at how the ten plagues, particularly the sign before the ten plagues, how... uh, God is bringing judgment against the gods of Egypt by the actual false gods, uh, real gods, but false gods uh, in the land of Egypt. Uh, We said last week that God brought a great act of judgment against uh, the actual idols of the Egyptian culture. That if you look at Egyptian culture, you can quickly see that, that God is building a polemic. He's building an argument against what and who the Egyptians uh, worshiped in their idol structure. And then this week, uh, we're focusing in on the 10th plague. I, of course, will not limit myself to only that plague. I'll speak uh, to multiple aspects of the entire narrative. But we're going to look at this climactic plague. And in this plague, we see God's great acts of judgment in regards to uh, Pharaoh and the uh, Egyptian people. Uh, Up until this point, my guess is that this study has been, you know, maybe, let's say, Uh, largely intriguing and educational, uh, but maybe not that emotional, maybe not that visceral, uh, maybe not uh, even that offensive. Uh, But I think today that changes, uh, or maybe it should change. If the reading of thousands of people dying uh, doesn't uh, bother us, we're less than human. And if uh, the report report of parents losing uh, their firstborn doesn't cause us pause, uh, I think we're in big trouble. Uh, Today, we study and consider and come face to face with the biblical doctrine and the historic reality that God puts to death, God consigns to eternal death any and all who reject him. In this series on Exodus, we have covered some very difficult, some very hotly uh, debated Topics. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was largely debated between biblical Christians who came from different theological persuasions. Uh, then we studied uh, the problem of evil, the so-called problem of evil, the so-called innocent suffering that happens in life, uh, like in the Philippines yesterday. And we looked at that, and, and as I've said, I think the problem of evil and suffering is what causes most people to leave the faith. But we study today what I perceive to be the thing that that keeps most people from embracing the faith in the first place. Judgment, eternal death, eternal punishment, uh, teaching that in the Bible will very quickly run to concepts like Sheol, hell, Hades, Gehenna. And so today it's going to go a little less intriguing, a little more uh, offensive, if you will. We often hear in this conversation, I can't believe in and worship a God who could send someone to hell forever who doesn't want to be there. Uh, I often hear, I'm a Christian. I just don't believe in eternal death for a finite life. I hear, do you really believe that God will send faithful, sincere, good, and even religious, moral people to hell 
just because they didn't believe in Jesus. So a difficult topic. We're going to look at those questions. We're going to look at the text. We're going to think about it this way. The plagues, especially the death of the firstborn, is a punishment the Egyptians particularly deserved, a reality the Egyptians ironically desired, and a distinction that many disregarded. All right, let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do enter into a very difficult uh, passage. We enter into a very difficult topic. We enter into a place um, that has, through the years, hardened hearts. I, I beg of you that you would soften ours, that we would be sobered by the reality of what your word says, but that we would be excited to see our Savior Jesus and all that he has done for us. May we worship you. May we feast on him. May we align ourselves with him even when we don't understand because of how he aligned himself with us on the cross. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First, a punishment they particularly deserved. I'm going to simply answer the questions, who, what, and why. First, who. Get out your scripture uh, text that's in the worship folder for you. To this point, uh, in the plagues, it's right to say that Yahweh was causing the plagues, but he was doing it through a staff or an insect or hail or, or dust or frogs. But now in the 10th plague, Yahweh himself is the immediate performer. He is the immediate visitor of Egyptian homes. Chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Chapter 11, verse 4, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Chapter 12, verse 29, the actual recording of the historic event at midnight, the Lord struck down. Moses wants us to clearly know that this is God's doing. That's who. Now what? Listen carefully in case you missed it. Chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Chapter 12, verse 29, again, the actual reality. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. The firstborn of every Egyptian rank died. Pharaoh at the top, down to the two uh, lowest groups of people in that society, uh, female servants and male prisoners, even the highly praised and often worshiped firstborn of the cattle died. Uh, Two quick quick notes about what I think are preconceived notions for us. Um, The word for firstborn uh, is is convincingly, uh, this concept is convincingly defended uh, by two of my favorite commentators on this passage. One of them writes this, Bekor means firstborn of either gender, not simply firstborn son. Second, firstborn is not newborn. In a culture where an adult was known as the firstborn their entire life, we would be wrong to imagine that only males or that only male infants died in this 10th plague. Male infants, of course, did die if they were the firstborn. But the judgment and the action was not only and even primarily about infants. And we say, my goodness, that's so hard to hear. I don't think I like that. Neither do I. But let's ask why. Not that we might like it, but that we might understand it. 
The answer to what was found in 11, 5, and 12, 29. The answer to why is in the verse following each of those, 11, 6, and 12, 30. 11, 6, Moses, God's prophet, announcing the plague. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Chapter 12, verse 30, the actual plague. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. I don't have time to show you all the connections in Exodus, but from chapter one forward, Moses writes this book in such a way to make it clear that this punishment was specifically and particularly deserved. It was measure for measure, divine and fitting, Retribution. Chapters three and four record, it's a conversation we've looked at already. If you weren't with us, it's a conversation between Yahweh and Moses. And it's at the burning bush. And after uh, Yahweh introduces himself, and he in- introduces himself as the God of, uh, of Moses' ancestors, the first thing he says to Moses is this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their great cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Chapter one tells the story of Pharaoh's oppressive policies and of the Israelites' intense suffering. Pharaoh, in an attempt to curb population growth, in an attempt to severely damage a nation, he first enslaved the Israelites, who to that point were free. They were not purchased, they were taken. Second, he placed bitter and brutal workloads on the Israelites, and he made the men travel away from Goshen to build cities for him. And and finally, when none of these strategies would work, male infanticide became national public policy because nothing else seemed to work. And we can only assume that his officers and his civilians acted out chapter 1, verse 22, when Pharaoh commanded all his people to cast newborn boys into the Nile. So when God predicts a great cry of the Egyptians, our minds are supposed to go back to the great cry the Egyptians caused to God's firstborn child. And when we read in the plagues that the Nile was turned to blood, our minds are supposed to go back to the fact that the Israelite baby boys were thrown into the Nile. And when we read that God struck Nakah 1229, the Egyptians, our minds are supposed to go back to the taskmasters in chapter two that would strike and kill the Israelites. The taskmasters in chapter five that would strike uh, the Israelite foreman. And when the Israelites heard in plague six that dust from the kiln was turning the Egyptians into boils, uh, we were supposed to remember and our minds are supposed to raise back to the decades of oppressive slavery and brick making from those same Kilns. The Israelite would have seen this as intense but poetic justice. Measure for measure, divine retribution, great cry for great cry. The Egyptian Pharaoh tried to oppress and reduce Yahweh's beloved firstborn, and so Yahweh, not Israel, not Moses, Yahweh put to death every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the slave girl to the prisoner, to even the cattle. That's the punishment that was particularly deserved. Now, a a reality that was ironically desired at the risk of seeming flippant, and I am not trying to be flippant. 
There is an irony in all of scripture that accompanies the Bible's teaching on God's wrath and God's judgment and the punishment of, of sinners. And that irony is this, that the one receiving God's proactive judgment is at the same time receiving the reality they think they want. An existence without Yahweh, an existence without being told what to do, an existence in which they are God, they are the center of the universe. It just turns out to be an isolated, painfully dark, agonizingly lonely universe. Think about it like this, okay? Commentators have noted the 10 plagues are not just a polemic against the gods or the idols of Egypt, but the 10 plagues are uncreation. They are creation reversals. They are creation decomposition. It's the unraveling of God's good creation. The great Nile River given by God to sustain life becomes a bloody death. Animals which were created for humans to be under the dominion and control of humans, to serve and be the advantage of humans, are completely out of control, and they render destruction. The sky which was to send life-giving rain to plants and animals and humans is frighteningly filled with fire and lightning and massive lethal hail. Darkness was the first chaotic reality that God brought under control in the introduction of light in Genesis 1-3. But in Plague 9, darkness conquers light if you will, and for three days brings creation back to its chaotic beginnings. The climax of creation in Genesis 1 is the creation of humans on the last day. The climax of the ten plagues is death to humans in the last plague. And the question is why? Why did God do it like this? Why the ten plagues of nature? Why didn't God just show up with a massive spiritual sword and slice everyone? Why, why did God have 10? Why did he announce them? Why did he perform them? Why did he stop them? Why all this hypernatural, nature ballistic going events? Because Yahweh was communicating something to the Egyptians and Pharaoh, and he was saying, this is what life is like apart from me. This is what your existence is like if you run away from my presence and my power. You're not simply putting off and denying and ignoring and rebuffing the national God of the Hebrews. You're, you're rebuffing the creator of the universe who holds everything together by his gracious and patient and forbearing power. And he's giving them a foretaste of what it's like to not live in a world that he holds together. A world of chaos, a world of pain, a world of isolation, a world of darkness. Sounds like hell. All these plagues, from a literary perspective, are in response to Pharaoh. Pharaoh denied Moses and Aaron's initial request to let the Israelites go in chapter 5. Listen to what Pharaoh said. Who is the Lord? Who's the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so God in the plagues is answering the question, who is the Lord? I'll show you, one at a time, who the Lord is. It's a theme consistently taught in scripture when people say to me, how could a loving God send someone to hell forever who doesn't want to be there? I say the Bible responds this way. First, God is a just God and he's a God of holiness and divine retribution. But second, he's a God who gives people exactly what they want. He's a God who gives unrepentant sinners their due and their desire 
in writing about God's wrath in Romans 1, the apostle Paul says that God's wrath can be understood this way. He gives people over to their lusts and desires and to what their mind thinks is best. He gives them what they want. You remember the story of Jonah, an Israelite prophet in the Old Testament? One day God showed up and he gave Jonah a command that Jonah didn't like. He said, go and prophesy in Nineveh, Israel's uh, enemy. And Jonah, as you probably remember, uh, even if you haven't been to church in a while, he, he does not obey. He, he disobeys. He runs in the opposite direction. And twice in chapter one, we're told of his express purpose in running away. Jonah says, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And so think about the story. Before the famous big fish swallows him and saves him from certain death, God throws a massive storm upon the sea, creation upheaval, a storm so severe and scary that the vulgar sailors begin to pray. Jonah moves into self-centered darkness and isolation away from community in the middle of the boat. Jonah is eventually thrown into the chaotic sea And according to Jonah, in chapter 2, he was out of God's sight. He was out of God's presence. And he says that he's about to enter Sheol, an Old Testament precursor to the New Testament teaching on hell and Hades and Gehenna. And he says the bars are about to close on him. And he said, God saved me. He wrote a poem of thanksgiving to God for saving him and putting him back on the mission. What's the point? He wanted to be away from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And Yahweh says, okay, I'll give you a foretaste of that dreadful reality. Chaos, drowning, isolation, pain, terror, agony. God was saying, I want you to think long and hard about what you get when you get what you want. You know, Jesus taught on hell more than any other biblical author. In fact, Jesus taught on hell more than all the other biblical authors combined. He called hell Gehenna, which was a place outside of Jerusalem where the dead would, uh, would be burned who could not afford a tomb. And he said of this place, the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies. Of course, they're metaphors which tell us uh, that the reality is much worse than the metaphor. The worm never dies speaks to, to maggots who lived off the flesh of the dead. And he is saying hell is this. It's eternal dis integration, eternal unraveling, eternal chaos, spiritual, eternal decomposition. And it's the result of man's choice. Jesus told a fascinating parable about a rich man. He lived sumptuously during his life, but he went to the agony of Hades upon death. And this same parable has a poor man in it, crippled and laid at the rich man's gate. His name's Lazarus. He would dream about having the crumbs off of Lazarus's table. And the parable is a conversation between the rich man in hell and Abraham in heaven. And the rich man in hell is still arrogant. He's still self-centered. He's still bossing Father Abraham and the beggar around. The rich man in hell, in agony, in pain, never asks if he can be taken out of hell. He simply asks for his existence to be made better through a finger dip of water. One of the points, he's getting what he wants. C.S. Lewis, before him, Augustine, after Augustine, Dante famously taught, hell is not something that begins at some point in the future. It's a reality chosen in the present. Hell is us 
getting our wishes. An existence without God, an existence without being told what to do by God, an existence in which we are God, the center of an isolated, painfully dark, agonizingly lonely universe. In the plagues, Yahweh was patiently, clearly, and consistently showing the Egyptians what life would be like if they continued on this path away from him instead of towards him. Hell begins today. It is simply self-centeredness on an eternal trajectory. The plagues are like the wise and courageous parent who says, go ahead, to the child who threatens to run away. My dad when I would threaten to run away, used to say, would you like for me to drop you off at the homeless shelter so you can get there before dinner? I don't think if you start walking now, you're gonna make it. And I don't think you're gonna sleep unless your belly's full. He wanted me to consider what I would get when I got what I wanted. I can remember as a teenager, I can remember actually thinking about running away. I didn't threaten it to get their attention. And I didn't run away knowing I was coming back. I did that a few times. But I actually thought about running away And when I sat down for a few hours by God's grace and kindness, I began to recount all the things I would lose out on if I ran away. A meal, a bed, a dad who loved me, a mom who loved me, a dad who gave me a job working hard in the summer, the savings that they had saved up for me to go to college. I just began to think through all the things that I would get, all the things I would get if I got what I wanted. And that perceived freedom looked like slavery to me. In the plagues, God is not just defeating the false gods of Egypt. He's not just building a polemic against the idol structure of Egyptian culture. He's giving divine foretaste of what life feels like apart from him. Something he will let the Egyptians choose, but a choice that gets them more than they would have ever wanted. And finally, Let's just go back to a very difficult reality of the passage that we're studying today. Parents, pay attention. We are not simply studying adults who choose to run away from God like Jonah. Chapter 11, verse 5. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. This text is not only about adults who sort of pick what they want and get what they want when they get what they want. It's also about generations and descendants and children. So my firstborn, my 10-year-old Maddie, we were talking about this yesterday. It would be her. It would be her Uncle Tommy. It would be her Aunt Shannon. It would be her Aunt Tina. It would be her Uncle Todd, her other Uncle Todd, her cousins, Bodie, uh, CMJ, Allie, her Nana, her grandpa, her grandpa, her cousins, Ashley and Thomas and Kaylin, her great-grandma, and we just ran out of ink and paper. We couldn't keep going. It's not newborn, it's firstborn. And it's not boys, it's boys and girls. So the deaths in Egypt of that night would be statistically running across the entire nation. However many 100-year-olds were firstborn would have died. However many 40-year-olds, 20-year-olds, and 12-year-olds who were firstborn would have died. But presumably, however many newborns were firstborns would have also died. And we say, really? That's not fair. That's the part that really bothers me. A nursing newborn? Really? And I want you to know that while Moses is teaching an awful lot in this text, he's at least teaching us this. The choices of parents have a massive impact on their children. 
whether our modern ears want to hear it or not, we can't deny it. You find me a good counselor that tells you that a parent has no effect or impact on their children, and I'll find you someone who's crazy for good or for evil. This is how God's creation generally works. That if the Egyptians were to continue on in their denial and rejection of Yahweh, it would have grievous and serious and significant impact on their children and on their children's children. It is a general principle in scripture. It is a trend. God generally saves the ones, the children of those parents who are living a saved life and also the spiritually lost are generally lost. That's what the scripture says. Later in Exodus, at Moses' request, God reveals himself. He reveals his name to Moses and listen to what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Parents, whether we like it or not, our lives have massive impact on our children. Our decisions regarding Yahweh and Jesus will have a massive impact on our children's decisions regarding Yahweh and Jesus. God is saying to the Egyptians, I'll give you what you want, but you better think long and hard about what you get when you get what you want. And I recommend our response be the same as Moses in Exodus 34, right after God says that about himself, listen to what Moses does. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I hear and I think, and sometimes I'm tempted to say, I can't worship a God who is like that. I cannot worship a God and follow a God who does that. And the Bible says, exactly. That's the essence of hell. Only worshiping and obeying and following a God you design, which of course is no God at all, which of course makes us God after all. So, a punishment they particularly deserved, a reality they ironically desired, and a distinction that many disregarded. Okay, stay with me. This is crucial. I hate preaching on this. Do not disconnect now. Look again at verse six and following. There should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog will growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. You may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. If you read through the entire plague narrative, you, you will know that it's not the first time that God prophesies that a plague will not strike the land of the Israelites and will not strike the people of Israel. In fact, in the first plague, God told Aaron to stretch out his hand over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, so that their water might be turned to blood. And even though this distinction is not clearly mentioned in every plague, it's mentioned in enough plagues that most scholars think that, that the plagues hit Egypt and Egyptians and not the land of Goshen where the Israelites were, uh, did not hit Israel. 
In fact, in plague seven, as I talked about last week, it's the first plague that takes human life. God not only makes the distinction that Goshen will not have hail, that Egypt will have hail, hail so large that it kills kills whatever it touches. In addition to that, God warned the Egyptians. He said, fear me, fear my word. Get your animals, get your servants, get your family under roof. They didn't have time to get to Goshen in time, but they could get undercover. And we're told that some did. Some obeyed Yahweh. Some identified with him and his word. And as early as plague seven, some Egyptians were not experiencing the full extent of this creation chaos. After the 10th plague, Moses and Aaron and the Israelites were commanded to leave urgently by Pharaoh, literally in the middle of the night, get out of here. And it says the Egyptian people joined in and told the Israelites who had already plundered them to get out of the land. And apparently they left in the middle of the night. But look at verse 38 of chapter 12. A mixed multitude also went up with them. Mixed is a word that originally was used for interwoven cloth. Every other time in our Bibles that this word comes up in the Old Testament, it's rendered foreign. A foreign abundance also, that means in addition to the Israelites, went out in urgency that night with the Israelites. What does this mean? It seems to me that the message God was sending in the plagues was working that many of the Egyptians by the end of the plagues were identifying themselves with Moses and his God and no longer identifying with Pharaoh and his God. Our text says that Moses was very significant in the eyes of the servants of Pharaoh and in the people of the land. What this means is those who did not identify with Yahweh disregarded a, a, a repeated distinction. If you keep going in chapter 12, God, in light of this mixed multitude, he gives further instruction to the people of Israel. He says, in the future, keep a Passover feast commemorating this reality that just happened in history. And we're going to look at this uh, in the future. When we come back in the spring, we're going to look at this same historic night from the perspective of an Israelite. And he says of this feast in the future, he says, no foreigner can eat it. But he says, if anyone will be circumcised. They can eat the Passover meal. And he says, think of them as natives in the land. Israel was never exclusively ethnic or racial. It was always geopolitical and national. Moses married a Midianite. Rahab and Ruth were not Israelites. A mixed multitude went out of the land with the Israelites. So, those who lost their firstborn on that horrific night disregarded distinction after distinction, ignored setting apart after setting apart, were aloof to warning after warning. And for whatever reason, whether it was to be comfortable, whether it was just unbelief, whether it was racism, whether it was pride or stubbornness or an unwillingness to lose face for whatever reason, when they did not change their minds, they continued to choose to be Egyptian and the reality they chose included the hell of their firstborn dying. And so let's ask the question, what made the Israelites distinct? God says, I make a distinction 
What makes them different? What makes them unique? Why were they spared the plagues? For what reason was their firstborn allowed to live? Listen carefully. It wasn't guilt or innocence. It wasn't being good or being bad. It was this. They covered themselves under the blood of the Passover lamb. Again, we're gonna study this in the spring. We're gonna come back and look at this night from the Israelites' perspective, but let me briefly say this as we prepare ourselves for communion. The distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptian was not their goodness, it was not their innocence, it was their belief in the Passover lamb who died in their place as the firstborn. When Moses told the Egyptians about the plague, he told them what I read to you, I had read to you in the text. In between there and the actual plague of the tent, he warns the Israelites and he says this. He says, take a spotless lamb, a lamb pointing to perfection. Slaughter the lamb, take some of the blood and paint it on the lintel and the door of your house. And when Yahweh comes through, he will pass over your house if he sees the blood. But if he does not see you taking refuge under the blood of an innocent another, he will strike your firstborn as well. The people of distinction were distinct because they were humble enough to obey God's word and hide themselves under the blood of the lamb. The New Testament clearly says Jesus is our Passover. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb pointed to and is fulfilled in Christ. Why were the Israelites, whether they were Israelites or Egyptians, why were the Israelites spared? Because they looked forward to the one who would die in their place. The spotless lamb. Think about it like this. When Jesus was on the cross, dying as the Passover lamb, the ground shook, creation chaos. Rocks split wide open, creation disintegration. It was dark from noon to three, creation reversal. Jesus was pierced and ravaged and shred and decomposed for us. In our place, love and grace He went to the forsaken place of hell. And again, when discussing this with my friends and as you discuss this with your friends, they say, do you really believe that God will send faithful, sincere, good, religious, moral people to hell who don't believe in Jesus? The underlying assumption of that question is that the people who are in heaven are in heaven because they're good and the people in hell are in hell because they're bad. No, no. The people who will be in heaven were bad, but they ran and covered themselves in the blood of the perfect lamb. Let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly father, we would, we would run from this. We would not speak to it. We would skip over it. But Jesus, you spoke of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And so we go there and we look at it and we consider what our sins deserve and we consider your love and your grace to go there for us. Would you remind us that yes, you are the just judge, but you are the judge who takes himself out of the bench and puts himself into the dock. And as one in the dock, you are judged in our place. Would we see your righteousness and your holiness and your wrath and would we worship you for it? Would we see your love and your grace and your mercy and your substitution? And would we worship you and give you our lives because we've never been loved like this? 
Lord, would you take this and would you soften our hearts with it? Would you get our questions answered about it? Would you keep us in community and keep us together with your word and your people? In your name we pray. Amen.